and have a seat. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is John. We are nearing the end. Next week, we'll end this series on old school. We're looking at a bunch of old guys in the Old Testament, and we're seeing what wisdom they can give us. Today, I'll be speaking on one of my favorite books. I do say that about just about every book in the Bible, yes. Uh, we're going to be looking at Jonah. So uh, normally when we show a video, the video is like two or three minutes long. This thing is nine minutes long, and I'm going to teach you the entire book of Jonah. So pay attention to this nine-minute video about Jonah. The book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet, rather it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagan's humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically, the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. 
What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard, which kind of seems noble at first until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. The storm subsides and they end up fearing the God of Israel and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death, but in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer, where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him, and he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now, his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong, or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. Whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter 1. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that you would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill, waiting to see what might happen. You know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. 
What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there, in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God, again, asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows? And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. Man, wasn't that good? Do you know how intimidating it is for me to get up and share anything after that video? It's like he just covered absolutely everything. The scriptures are telling us a story, aren't they? And to our surprise, it is not the story of good versus bad. It is not the story of the religious people that God loves and the irreligious people that God doesn't love. The scriptures themselves are a subversive story that communicate to us that the love of God is more expansive, it is more inclusive, it is more passionate than any of us can possibly dream. And so the scriptures themselves mess with us, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Verse 2. But, or was that verse 2? I think, thank you. We had to tr change this morning from the ESV to the NIV. So I'm kind of flying blind a little bit here. What I want you to know about Nineveh is it was a great city and the Ninevites the people of Assyria were a wicked, cruel people. They had a reputation for being the bad boys of the area. They built monuments of human carcasses. They would flay the skin off of kings and cover some of their statues with them. That was their reputation. I want, you to, I want to read uh, what a guy, Graham Scroggy, said. These people ruled with hideous tyranny and violence. The Assyrian kings literally tormented the world. 
They flung away the bodies of soldiers. They made pyramids of human heads. They sacrificed holocausts of sons and daughters of their enemies. They impaled heaps of men on stakes. They cut off the hands of kings and nailed them on walls. They covered pillars with flayed skins of rival monarchs. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And he said, go talk to those people. I just want to let this sink in how challenging some of the things that God tells us to do actually are, right? God sometimes asks us to do things that are very, very difficult. Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. There's a couple of things I want you to notice here. First of all, the name of the port there where he had to make a decision. Do I obey God and sail this way or do I run away from God and go the opposite way? The name of that port is Joppa. I'm going to tie that back in later in this story. It's very, very significant. But I want you to notice what he does. He runs from God. He's a man of God. He knows what God wants and he does the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. And this brings us to my first big idea that I want to share with us here. We all run from the God who loves us. We all do this. At some point in time, maybe in your history, maybe in your future, but at some point in time, you're going to get all mixed up in your head and you're going to think disobedience to God is the worst thing that I could possibly do and you're going to run from God. Maybe it'll be subtle. Maybe you'll just hide out and not share what's really going on in your heart, but we all run from God and this should be so obvious to us all. Doesn't all humanity do that? Isn't all humanity doing that right now? They're running from God. Why is it if we surveyed 100 people on the street, how many of them would have heard of the New Testament? All of them. How many of them have read the New Testament? Very, very few of them. Now think about this. I've heard this so many times. Well, the Bible's full of contradictions. Really? Which one bothers you is my response. Well, it's just what I've heard. So you've not read it for yourself. Well, no, I've not taken the time. Let's think about this. Let's say that there's some great movie out and everybody watches it and everybody talks about it. Did you go see this? Friends are telling friends, you've got to see this movie. It's so awesome. The New Testament is that movie. And it's right here on our phone. You can just pull it out. It doesn't take hours to watch. It's free. But human beings are masters at coming up with all kinds of excuses to run away from the God who loves us. And this is my experience as a Christian, too. The reason God put his Holy Spirit inside of us is the only way he can get us to obey him. We're so afraid of him. We just want to run the other way, and I hope you connect with that. You are Jonah. I am Jonah. We're going to skip a lot of this first chapter. Um, The video did a great job of explaining what happens. Jonah gets onto a boat, and he goes into the bottom of the ship and falls asleep. And this is not just, I, I didn't get enough sleep last night. This is the deep sleep of depression. <laughs> there is a storm raging 
around the ship and he is sleeping through it. How is that possible? That's the depression of someone who is trying to run away from God. Let's look at verse 13. So the sailors, as pointed out in the video, were more righteous than Jonah. They're trying to do what's right. Jonah says, kill me, and the sailors say, we don't want to do that. Verse 13, instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, as the video said, just a few moments before, they were worshiping all these other gods. But when they met a man of God running away from God, they realized there, there is a God. What's ironic here is that these sailors end up yielding their lives to some, in some way, shape, or form to God, even while Jonah is screwing up as bad as any human being can screw up. Do you, do you see that? Like he's running away from God. Talk about an effective evangelist. I'm going to run away from God and all these people convert. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that absurd? That's what the story's supposed to do, the sto story is supposed to mess with us. And this brings us to the second big idea that I have here is that God is really good. He's really, really good at saving people. He is really good. He knows what he is doing. I try to be very clear when I communicate the good news of Jesus is the most important news on the planet. I've shared this with you before, but what I tell myself, the message in my head when I get to talk to someone about Jesus, is this is probably the most important conversation this person has ever had. And I say that not because I think I'm all that, because I think the gospel message is all that. And the gospel message is so beautiful, and yet we're so reluctant. We don't want to offend anybody, and we don't want them to think that we're some kind of weirdo, and so we take the greatest news on the planet, we keep it to ourselves. And the non-Christian friend is thinking, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just talk to me about Jesus? I know you're a Christian. Why don't you just talk to me? Because we're afraid. And I've had so many conversations where I've realized how great God is at saving people. I mean, you don't need to raise your hand on this. I think a minority in this congregation were brought up in a Christian home. Many of us were de-churched. We kind of turned the radio off of God's voice, and we went our different way. Isn't it amazing that God used circumstances to turn that volume back up? Isn't that cool how he did that? Some of you are nodding your head. You know it's like, yeah, God's really good at that. How did he do that? Some of us, our lives were just really hard, and we were brought really low. And we thought, I need God. Some of us, that's not the story at all. Our lives were really blessed. And we saw how empty being blessed is without God. Isn't it amazing how good God is at saving people? And I've shared this story sometimes, you know, I just got to share old stories, and that's what I got to do. So I was working with a friend of mine uh, named Steve, not our Steve, 
not Pastor Steve, just to clarify. And Steve and I were sharing the good news with somebody. And I have to admit, Steve gave the absolute worst presentation of the good news of Jesus I have ever heard. I mean, he was going all over the place. I'm a Christian, and I had no idea what his point was. I was totally confused. He was trying to tie in Old Testament shrubbery or something. He was like, what are you talking about? I was lost. And Steve says to his friend at the end of sharing that, he says, does that make sense to you? And the guy says, totally. In fact, the part that affected me most, and he went on to say something that I swear Steve never said. And I'm like scratching my head, and the guy says, I want to commit my life to Jesus. And I'm like, what is going on here? There's power in the message. God's really good at saving people. He's really good at saving people. Verse 17. Verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And I hope I can communicate this clearly. Getting thrown overboard and swallowed by this giant fish was like the best thing that ever happened to Jonah. You guys have gone through trials, right? You've gone through hardships, right? Some of us have been in the belly of the whale in an impossible situation, like I'm trapped, I'm hemmed in, I can't get out. I can't fix my marriage. I can't get my kids to walk with God. I can't improve my finances. I can't. I'm trapped. It's hopeless. I am stuck here. And those impossible situations are like chronicled all over this book. Like God loves to put us in impossible situations. Do you know why that is? When I became a Christian, I faced an impossible situation. A holy God that demanded my return, and a complete inability to come back to God. Our, our will does not want God. It was impossible. I was lost. I was separated from God. There was nothing I could do to save myself. And God moved into that experience, and in the impossible belly of the whale of being a lost person, God met me. But what do we do? We forget we live the Christian life out of our own power, and God has to bring up the belly of a whale, the impossible situation, to remind us, to just remind us and say, hey, I'm pretty good at this. This is like what I do so well, to take an impossible situation and move into it. And it may take a long time, but with that marriage, with that kid, with those finances, with your friends, with all those impossible circumstances that you can list out right now, I want you to hear this. God wants to move into that situation. God wants us to yield that situation to him this morning. Are you with me? He loves to do that. He delights to be our savior. Being swallowed by that fish was really, really a good thing. We're going to skip all of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. I want to draw your attention to a single word. It's the word kased. It's the word kased. It's a Hebrew word that is so difficult to translate that translators just came up with new words. They took loving and they took kindness and then they stuck it together and said loving kindness because they couldn't interpret it because it's so unusual. Kassad is a faithful, emotional love that comes from the heart that I'm going to bless you, I'm going to favor you, it doesn't make any sense, but that's just who I am. 
and Jonah in the belly of the whale, all he had was cassette. All he had to bank his life on was, okay, would you remember me in your loving kindness? So the third big idea is this. When all hope is lost, God's steadfast love remains. God's steadfast love remains. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. I got to admit, I love this verse. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In the eyes of what Jonah was called to do, there's nothing worse than he could have done. It's like, I'm not obeying you. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to run from you. And God's like, okay, you can run. But then the word of the Lord came a second time. Why doesn't it say, so God smote Jonah, Almighty smiter. Why didn't it say that? Instead, the man that failed and God says, I'm not done with you. And the word of the Lord came to him a second time. Those of you that have been de-churched, this has become true in your life. Like you were brought up in the church and you heard the word of the Lord and then you walked away from God for a long period of time and God said, okay, I'm not done. And the word of the Lord came a second time to you. Verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Jonah was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, you just have to picture him in your mind. His clothes are bleached white now. It's like, why did the city respond? I'll tell you why the city responded. The clothes of the prophet are now bleached white from the acids of the fish. He smells like fish. His skin maybe is ashen gray by being away from the sun for three days. There's dark circles under his eyes. He's dripping wet. The dripping wet bleached prophet comes up and he says, now listen, he's got a piece of seaweed around his head. And the people of Nineveh worshiped a god named Dagon, which, which was the god of the sea. And he's been in the belly of the whale for three days. He says, I've got a message from God for you. Don't you think you'd listen? Kind of got your attention. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is like the black that we wear at funerals. It was a symbol of, of mourning here. And this brings us to the next huge, huge idea. No one is beyond God's reach. Now, you might believe that intellectually. I doubt if you really believe that experientially. Do you really believe that no one is beyond God's reach? I mean, that's what the story's all about, right? Ninevites, evil people, and God says, no problem. I'm going to move into this. I'm going to save them. Again, I've shared this story with you before, but some stories are just so good. You just need to hear it a second time. I learned this as a freshman in college when my buddy Dave, who was an evolutionist, I had talked with, argued with, and David made it clear that he was not interested at all. A friend of mine, Chris, came over to talk to Dave, and I remember saying, this is like a gazillion years ago, and I remember these words, Chris, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Dave's not interested. Chris decided to waste his time. Took about 45 minutes sharing with Dave. Next thing I know, big Dave, 
big guy, came running out of his dorm room toward me, running toward me, crying, saying, John, I'm saved. 45 minutes, and he stopped talking, and he started listening, and his heart got humbled, and he cried out to God and was changed. No one is beyond God's reach. I want you to think about this right now. We have this Christmas Sunday on the 23rd. Who are you going to invite? You know someone like Big Dave, don't you? Do you think that person is beyond God's reach? We, we are so proud here. And what I mean by that is we decide. We assume that no one's interested. What, because they're wealthy, because they're old, because they're young? We make all of these excuses in our mind, and we don't invite. And we miss out, not to mention they miss out, we miss out on the joy and the experience of saying, oh, I just invited them, and God has done something. Chapter 4. Like the video uh, communicates so clearly, why is there a chapter four? The story is over at this point. Nineveh has repented. There's no reason for chapter four to be in there, except God cares about our hearts. So chapter four, verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. I love the honesty of scripture. I just love how Jonah is a real human being, and he's actually ticked off. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? I know some of us, we read the Old Testament, we think of God as being up there zapping people with thunderbolts, and I just see God being so parental here, so kind. He's like a counselor. Do you really want to feel angry? Is that beneficial to you? This story is supposed to cause us to introspect. It's supposed to cause us to reflect. We need to think about this. Are we embarrassed about Jesus? I had a whole section here about 10 minutes of, uh, I want to show you a bunch of church marquees with stupid sayings, but we all know that they're there. We all know that Christians do stupid things. But the best sign to your friend of the love of Christ is you. Humbly, sincerely saying, would you like to come to H2O? No, I'm not interested. That's okay. It's okay if you're not interested. Would you come anyway? I don't think you heard me. I'm not interested. I know, I know. Would you do me the honor of coming one time? Verse 5. Or not. All right, this is God intervening right here. We know where the story goes, right? Jonah wants fire to fall from heaven, and God works in his life, and he causes this plant to grow over Jonah's head because God is trying to communicate to Jonah, listen, 
There are things in your life that you care about a lot. Maybe it's football. Maybe it's your car, your home. And God communicates to Jonah and to me and hopefully to you, God is on a different wavelength than us. He cares and loves and pursues things that we tend to not even think about. And God wants to kind of walk past our defenses and get into our heart and a little mess with that and say, this is me, this is who I am. Do you see who I am? You know, it's um, really easy for us to miss this. And the story has some little background that I think powerfully ties this all in. The ruins of Nineveh were excavated in the 1800s, okay? Some British guy came along, and there's this mound, which is about 100 feet high, and on the top of this mound is a Muslim shrine, or was a Muslim shrine, the shrine of Eunice. Eunice is the name in the native tongue of Jonah. So while we all sit around going, oh, I wonder if this is a real story, like there's a shrine to Jonah with a whale bone that was hanging from the ceiling there in the ruins of Nineveh. So once Nineveh was found, do you know what city it was found in, where they found it? Mosul. Does that name ring a bell for anyone? I think I'm pronouncing it right. I may not be. It's a city with, when ISIS in 2014 started blowing up all of these artifacts and they tried to destroy history in the town of Mosul. Is that right? Okay, no one knows. In the town of Mosul, they destroyed something. They destroyed what was known as the tomb of Eunice or Jonah. So right there in the city, there's these ruins and there's this tomb, supposedly of this man that we are reading about, and it was destroyed. And underneath, so once ISIS had done their work, archaeologists were able to come in and they did this excavation and they found underneath this tomb, they found this plaque that was to King Azarhaddon, if I'm pronouncing that right, which was another biblical story. My point is, as we wonder whether or not this story is true, there's all this evidence that this is an actual thing that happened. There's a couple other allusions that I want to make before I close off here. First is to Jesus and his preaching. Jesus said, just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so will the Son of Man, referring to himself, be in the earth for three days and three nights. And this strikes me that of all the illustrations in the Old Testament that Jesus could choose, he chooses the Jonah story as the symbol of his death and resurrection. Are you tracking with me? This is really powerful. There's so many Old Testament stories that Jesus could have said, so like Abraham sacrificed his son, so God will sacrifice me. He didn't. He said the only sign that would be given to this generation was the sign of Jonah. 
And he's referring to his own death and resurrection. Because the story of Jonah encapsulates the message of Jesus. That Jonah was off doing his own thing. While God was saving the world. The other thing I want to go back to is that port. That port of Joppa. This is really cool. I like cool things. This is really cool. So what y'all are like, what is Joppa? So in the New Testament, the Christians, for a period of time after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Jewish Christians only spoke to Jews. Almost every person in this room here is a Gentile. We're a non-Jew. And the Jews of Jesus' day, after the resurrection, they only told Jews about Jesus. Even though Jesus had said, go tell the world, and, and they were like, yeah, 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 the world, the world of Jews, because you don't love Gentiles. So even the earliest Christians were very slow to understand the message of what Christ was all about. But in a port town called Joppa, a man named Peter had a dream. And in that dream, he realized that God loved the entire world. And that was the beginning of outreach to the Gentile world of you and I, was the port town of Joppa. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Here's my last big idea. You can be a child of God and miss the heart of God. You can be a child of God and miss the heart of God. Let's just admit something. It's really easy to get lost as a Christian. I've never heard anyone share that, but I, I've come to believe that. It's really easy to get lost. You can get lost in theology. Some Christians get lost in theology. They make their sole ambition to just understand facts about the Bible. You can get lost in experience. You can come on Sunday and worship God and raise your hands inside of a building with a lost world outside of the building. You can even get lost in community. Community is a great thing, but you can make your community all about the closeness of your friends and the intimacy we have. We can get lost. And this story is in Scripture in order to bring us back, especially in this Christmas time, remembering that Jesus came to earth for us. This story is here to mess with us. This story is here to speak to us and say, listen, God's different than you think. His love is broader, deeper, more inclusive. That person that you are checking off in your mind saying there is no hope for them. The God of heaven and earth loves them. And so I, for one, want to be a re repentant Jonah and come out from under my little plant and begin to care, continue to care about the things that are on the heart of God. Here's where we move into worship. I want you to imagine a radio. And you're moving the dial on the radio. And all you're getting is static. See, God wants to speak to you today. As we worship him, God wants to take that radio dial and turn it and fine-tune it to where you can hear the message come through loud 
and clear. So can we just pause and reflect? We're going to take about one minute to just sit in silence and ask God to speak to us. God, what is your message for me? Can we all bow our heads and ask God to speak? God, we thank you for Kassed. We thank you for an unfailing, passionate love that comes from your heart toward us. We're in this room because of that. Because you chased after us. And we get to be the objects of your Kassed and the message bearers of Kassed to the world. And we give you thanks for that. now, Lord, we come by a choice of our will, not just to listen to the band play songs, but to engage our hearts in worship, to lift our eyes up to heaven by faith to see the one who came and died and rose again, and to respond back with all of our hearts and our voices singing loud and proud without embarrassment or shame that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we come now and worship. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we worship. Amen. 